You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when you come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head, on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. 
They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this book. We pray now that we might, um, as these characters in this book, might be a people who are longing and waiting for your salvation, who long to dwell in your presence and to dwell with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tonight is a torch night. So if you're a fourth through a sixth grader and you want to head out with Cedric and others uh, and talk about Joshua 1 and 2, you can head on that way. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Uh, Kyle is back, but he got sick yesterday and today. So he and Michelle are both really sick. Uh, So thanks, Raybo, for filling in on like an hour's notice. And Leon, Michelle's brother, wherever you are, joining us from Desert Springs, playing bass for us. So thank you for being here and filling in so ably. Uh, Happy Mother's Day. I'm so glad to be with all of you on this day that is honoring so many of you in this room. A day, just as Raybo prayed a second ago, a day that is painful. Uh, for some who desire to be mothers and, do, and or who are missing their mothers today, still others who are sad about uh, difficult or absent relationships with their mothers. Motherhood and our relationships with our mothers is one of the most direct and influential relationships that any of us will ever have. And while for many of this room this day is difficult, just as we thought about last week, Uh, with the tribes of Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh and Joshua 1, the people of God are a plural people, not merely a collection of individuals. And so when some suffer, we all suffer. And yet at the same time, when some rejoice, we all rejoice. So even in acknowledging the difficulty for some here, we want to enter into that with you. We also want to take a couple of minutes, as we've already done, and even now, just once a year to honor you mothers in this room, to honor your hard work to honor your nurture, to honor your care and your love and your discipleship of your children. Our church is so thankful for you. Uh, So thankful for your strength, for your courage, and for so many of you, your admirable faith in which we look and watch how you are following Jesus. So it just so happens that tonight in Joshua 2, the primary character around which the narrative revolves is another woman, a woman of strength and courage and of admirable faith. And in so many ways, Rahab is entirely, it is an entirely unexpected character that might appear as a model of faith. And yet, the more you get to know the Bible, the more you get to know the God of the Bible, perhaps she becomes exactly the kind of character that we should expect to appear as a model of faith. So we're going to see her portrayed as someone whose boldness we should emulate, whose faith we should emulate in three ways. And so we're going to see her uh, first boldly welcoming God's salvation, and then boldly confessing God's power, and then boldly waiting for God's salvation. And so in thinking through these three things, I want us to be persuaded by just one thing from Joshua 2 and from the life of Rahab, that the certain promises of God should motivate courageous lives in his people. And if that sounds familiar, if you were with us last week, that should sound familiar because that's exactly what I told you we should think about last week. We'll see why in just a minute, but let's get going here into the life of Rahab. 
thinking about how she is boldly welcoming God's salvation. If you weren't with us last week for our intro in the book of Joshua in chapter 1, we saw God command Joshua to be strong and courageous. Because, why? Because he has promised Joshua that he is going to go with him. He will never forsake him. Joshua was to lead the people in being a man of God's word. The people of God were to be a people of the word of God. And so then, Joshua commanded the same things to the people as he has received from God, as they prepare to enter the land. They are on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are preparing to enter the land. We'll see this crossing of the Jordan River next week. And so when Joshua comes to the people in Joshua 1 and tells them and prepares them for their entrance in the land, all the people respond with enthusiastic obedience. And so here we find the people still on the east side of the Jordan River, and we're told that Joshua sends two men secretly. He sends two spies while they were at Shittim. Now, the only time we have ever heard of this place, Shittim, was back in Numbers 25. When the people were last there, they, the men began to find Moabite women, sometimes marrying them, sometimes not, but they're moving into relationships that bound up Israelite men and Moabite women, Israelite and Moabite families, Israelite and Moabite worship. Numbers 25 gets pretty explicit, describing the kinds of physical and familial relationships happening, but the point of all of that is the danger of interconnection of idols and interconnection and overlap of worship, of true and false worship. The people of Israel in pursuing their own comfort and pursuing their own pleasure had rejected the worship of the one God who loved them and had delivered them. And they are going out immediately here before they enter the land, a generation prior here in Numbers 25 at Shittim, looking for other gods, looking for other saviors. So the narrator here, which by the way, I didn't mention last week, but I don't see any compelling reason why we should abandon the traditional view that Joshua himself, except for like the last half of the last chapter of this book, that Joshua himself is the narrator. So the narrator, Joshua, wants to like ring an alarm bell here by his mention of Shittim. His readers are to read this and say, "Uh uh-oh, are we about to have a sequel? Are we about to have Shittim part two of Israel going after foreign women, going after the foreign women's gods? And so Joshua sends these two spies in verse one, and he says, go, view the land, especially Jericho. Go across the river and see what it is that we're about to walk into. Well, we'll spend more attention, more time and attention on Jericho in chapter six. For now, this city is just a few miles west of the Jordan, just past it about 10 miles from where the Jordan River finally empties into the Dead Sea down in the south of the river. And it's only about 15 miles east and downhill of what would eventually become Jerusalem. Remember in Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan, he tells the story of a man who is walking downhill from Jerusalem towards Jericho, which is about an eight-hour walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. So in the second half of verse one, we read this, and they went and they came into the house of a prostitute in Jericho, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So with Shatim on our minds, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, it really is Shatim part two. Well, we should immediately we should immediately be worried. We should also recognize that Rahab's house here is almost certainly something like an inn or a tavern. 
So while the fullness of her vocation is less than reputable, there are likely people who are coming and going from her place with intentions possibly no worse than just stopping in for a drink or even one of the guest rooms with nothing more than a night's sleep in mind. Which then, unlike some commentators who throughout the centuries assume the worst about these two men, uh, staying at Rahab's house uh, doesn't necessarily suggest anything illicit here or inappropriate, especially since, as we'll see with Achan in chapter 7, how the sin of just one person can bring serious horizontal consequences to the rest of the people. So we should probably then just imagine uh, Rahab's house, as I do, like the prancing pony in uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. I know, I know this guy with his Lord of the Rings references, but think about it. It's just like a, a tavern a tavern where people are gathering and eating and drinking, and then if you desire to stay, there's probably some guest rooms upstairs. And so this likely seems to be what's happening in verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. It appears these guys aren't very good spies. The king of Jericho finds out that they're in town the first day. Uh, but maybe it was that they're kind of trying to work the room. They're trying to move about the tavern and trying to figure out uh, what's happening here in Jericho. So like, uh, what do you guys like here in Jericho? Uh, pretty good fighters or what? Uh, any place that you like hide your swords like behind this curtain or something? Any weak places in the wall like hypothetically speaking, uh, maybe who knows what they're doing. But whatever happens, the king's men then come to Rahab's house and they come to the door, they're outside, and they say, send out the spies. We know they're here. We know what they're here for. Send them out. And then so much of the chapter then after this bounces around chronologically. The narrator kind of moves from here to there. Uh, but as soon as Rahab hears that the king's men are coming for the Israelite spies, she takes them upstairs and she takes them to her roof, the flat roof where she has them hide under some stalks of flax. Flax is the plant that linen is made from. You dry it out and then you kind of shave it and pull it and then you can kind of weave these things together, wet them after the fact, and you can make linen out of this. But the stalks are about three feet high and you'd bundle them together and you need to really dry them out first. So the flat roof of her house is like a really good place to just lie out bundles of these stalks and let them dry. So they get up there and these spies lie underneath and hide under these bundles. And so with the spies on her roof, Rahab walks outside, presumably to, to the king's men, and she says this in verse 4 and 5. She says, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now Rahab is explicitly lying here. Students of the Bible have used this story to justify lying if lying is needed uh, for a greater good, like saving lives. Much like the Hebrew mid midwives in Exodus 1, Rahab is never condemned here, just like the midwives in Exodus 1. She's never condemned for her lies here in Joshua 2 or anywhere else in the Bible. Nowhere else in the Bible condemns her for, what, for her untruth. She seems to be uh, like a pre-modern example for people like Corey Tin Boom or someone like that in World War II Holland who was harboring and protecting hidden Jews from the Nazis and lying straight to their face. Now, while so much has been written about this, and believe me, I read a lot this week about the Hebrew midwives and about Rahab and Corrie ten Boom and about ethics, uh, situation ethics, like the way that we come up with right and wrong depends on the situation. Utilitarian ethics, right and wrong depends on the outcome. Or virtue ethics, right and wrong flow outwardly from the inward virtue of a person. 
Now, I realize uh, what I'm about to say comes after, comes after lots of thought and reading, but I'll say this. I don't think Rahab was right to lie. Uh, and if I'm right, and, or if right and wrong is based on the character of God, and God does not lie, and within him is no darkness at all, there is no shadow of untruth, uh, I don't think she should have lied. And while this is purely speculative, I don't think that Jesus would have had lied to these soldiers in the exact same brazen way that Rahab does here. And yet at the same time, I don't think if Jesus was in this position that Jesus would have walked out and said, yep, you got me, they're upstairs hiding. Jesus, time and time again in the Gospels, shows us the example of a man who is so unbelievably righteous and so unbelievably wise, so that Jesus is able to use his words in an honest way to then turn the situation around. I have no idea what it would have looked like if Jesus is the one here in this house in Jericho with these soldiers, but I think uh, that's what he, what he intends for us as his disciples and what his encouragement to us ought to be is for us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But here's the thing about Rahab. She does absolutely intend well. And she is, as best as she presently knows and understands, she is welcoming in the salvation of God. She is welcoming and harboring the people of God. And unbeknownst to the Jericho soldiers, she is rejecting them by lying to the authorities over her, these soldiers, by rejecting their authority and rejecting their and her former way of life. She is now aligning herself with God's people. And as we'll see, that means aligning herself with God. She has been converted, we might say. And so I don't think I could say it better than one commentator who says this. He says, it's best not to excuse Rahab's actions, but neither to be troubled by them. Her lie is not the narrator's emphasis. And therefore, probably like all of the blogs and the the books and the podcasts and even the dissertations about the ethics of Rahab's lies uh, miss the point. The lie here is not, to, is not the narrator's emphasis. What is the narrator's emphasis? It's what comes right after this. The truth that she tells. Her lie is not being emphasized here. What is she confessing to be true about God? That is what the narrator wants us to highlight and grab hold of. So let's get there. Let's move on. Verse 7 tells us that the soldiers then like giddy up out of the city to try to catch the spies all the way to the Jordan, and they close the gate of the city behind them, uh, not realizing that the men were all along hiding on Rahab's roof. But now they're stuck. We'll get to that in a minute. And so if this was Rahab's welcoming of God's salvation, that she has welcomed, that she has harbored, that she has protected the people of God, let's find out why she does this. She is boldly welcoming God's salvation because she, secondly now, is boldly confessing God's power. So, moving forward in the chapter in verse 8, but it's actually going back in time, uh, the narrator says that before the men lay down, she came up to them. So this is before the soldiers have arrived. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now, if, you're, if you've been reading, starting in Genesis and reading up to uh, Joshua 2 here, uh, these kinds, the things that she's saying, this kind of language should be ringing bells. Back in Exodus 15, just as 
just after the people crossed the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt, Moses, he sings a song of deliverance, and he says that because of what God has done in bringing them out of Egypt, Moses says this in Exodus 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Now here, Rahab is using the exact same language that Moses was using at the Red Sea. In verse 10, she says, For we have heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Rahab says that they've heard all about what happened to the two Amorite kings in Numbers 21 who wouldn't let Israel pass through their land on their way to Canaan, instead attacking the people of Israel, and they were destroyed. And because of the power of God over light and darkness in the plagues in Egypt, because of God's power over nature, because of God's power over the wind and the waters, because of his power over the kings and the gods of Egypt and Moab, because of his power over life and death itself, because of all of that, she says in verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, all of that, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She's essentially saying, as soon as we heard everything that God had done for you, as soon as we heard all this news, we knew what was coming. We knew the inevitable uh, coming of God to this place, that the God of Israel is actually the God of gods. He is the king of lesser kings. He is not just some regional tribal God, but he is the God of all gods. She says, and notice the all caps Lord there in chapter to many places in chapter, or in verses 10 and 11. She is, whenever you see that all caps Lord in our English Bible, this is our English translators uh, hint to you that this, she is saying she's using God's covenant name of Yahweh. She is saying that in hearing of Yahweh, the covenant name of God, his power and his salvation, she and all the people have come to know that Yahweh, your God is the God of heaven and earth. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph and of Moses, he is the God of gods. And so pre presumably, then having heard all this, and again, she's, we've just heard her speak for all of Jericho and all of Canaan. Presumably then, all of Jericho, all of Canaan, just like Rahab, is then ready to give Yahweh their lives, ready to give him their worship. They are ready to welcome in the people of God and align themselves with his people, right? No, just like we considered with Jesus a few weeks ago in Luke's gospel, the same fear of God that can cause some to come to him with attraction in humble love and worship, that same fear of God can then send others away in repellent disgust of him. I think Rahab does speak for all of Jericho and all of Canaan when she says in verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. They also knew, all of Jericho and all of Canaan also knew that the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But as we'll see in the coming chapters, all of Canaan then like sticks their fingers in their ears and like la 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 la, like pre just pretends that none of that is true. We knew, we all of us knew the power of God. We knew that God is the God of all of heaven and earth, but let's pretend it's not true. Why? Because the truth actually demands like an about face in life. 
The truth about God demands loyalty to an authority higher than themselves. The Canaanite gods were simply just reflections at the very bottom of a well, reflections of themselves, gods that served themselves, gods of money and of power and of pleasure. And so they, the people of Jericho and the people of Canaan, just like all humans who came before them and and after them, do what humans do. What Paul says in Romans 1, with fingers in our ears, we, Paul says, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, all people, the people of Jericho, the people of Canaan, the people of Albuquerque are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul goes on to say they exchanged what they intuitively knew to be the right worship of God for the worship of lesser things, for the worship of self and for created things. But not Though for those who come to see God's eternal power and his divine nature as repellent, but for those who come to see his divine nature and his power as attractive, worthy of worship. Not for those who see the worship of themselves as fundamentally limited because our worship is only as big as the object of our worship. And we, if we are reflective about our worship of ourselves, we come to find out and to know that we are small and limited creatures. Now, the worship of ourselves is not providing the life, the comfort, the joy, or security that the reflection of the bottom, at the bottom of the well promises, but that when worship is actually directed towards something or someone eternal, then the life, the comfort, the joy, and security are like reciprocally eternal. But to receive that, to know that, to experience that, first requires an about-face a death to self, a change in ultimate allegiance, a bold confession of God's power and not a confession in our own power. And all of this is exactly what Rahab does, a death to herself, a death to her own comfort and security, a death to her allegiance to Jericho and to Jericho's gods, a death to her former life that she might find life in Israel's God, the God of heaven and of earth. And so she says in verse 12, Now then, she says to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She likely doesn't know of God's promise to Abraham that God would bless those who bless Abraham's family and curse those who curse them, but she is banking on the character of God that that would be true. That if she aligns with God's people, that the God of those people will save her and save those who are aligned with her, her family. And so in verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So we've seen Rahab's bold welcoming of God's salvation, and we've seen her bold confession of God's power. She is welcoming the salvation of God because she believes that God can save. He can do it. 
And so now, let's see her boldly waiting for God's salvation. Because of God's promises and the promises of God's people, she trusts in the salvation of God, but she must wait for that salvation to finally come. So now thirdly, boldly waiting for God's salvation. The soldiers are gone. The gate is closed. So she's got to figure out a way to get the spies out of town. So she lets down a rope, presumably at night, out of her window down the city walls. And let me show you two images here. Uh, Matt, yeah, so here's, here's a best uh, working model of Jericho based on the archaeological research that has been found. So you've got an outer wall and an inner wall. Rahab is likely, well, not likely, she is, she's got a house built in that inner wall. So when she says, or when the narrator says that her house was built in the wall, for she lived in the wall, uh, that's how we can make sense of that. She's, she's built her house right on probably the edge of, her, of this outer wall, but she is inside that wall. Uh, and then maybe next image, Matt, with the coming destruction, I don't know if you can tell, you can really see that, with the coming destruction of these walls coming in chapter 6. This is, perhaps you can see some houses right on the outside or on the inside of that outside wall. This is likely the kind of house that Rahab has built here. And so, it's not that difficult then for her to just let down a rope on the outside of that outer wall. So, this is where she lets the spies down. But before they do, they give Rahab a scarlet cord to put over her window so that when Israel arrives back at Jericho, they will know that Rahab has aligned herself with the people of God and with Israel. And so they give her very specific instructions, to which in verse 21, Rahab says, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. She will do exactly as she has been commanded here, exactly as she is commanded in bold and in confident expectation and trust of the sure coming of God into, Can into Canaan, but also of the sure salvation of God for anyone who would repent, who would believe in this God who happens to live in Canaan here. Rahab is an absolute model of faith for us today. Her courageous and bold faith is an example of faith in action. It's one thing to say that you have faith, but if that faith never or rarely translates into practice, is it actually faith? Or is it just meaningless words? I have faith in God. Whatever that means, if it is not translating into anything, is it actually faith? And this is James's point in James 2, when he highlights Rahab. You guys ever read James 2? This woman here in Joshua 2 is highlighted right alongside Abraham. James puts them together as models of faith. Abraham's faith, Rahab's faith, is shown to be a justifying faith because of their works, because of what they do. Or as has been often said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. If Rahab did not let the spies down, if Rahab did not tie the scarlet cord over the window, does she actually have faith in the God who can save her? No, she just said she did. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews, along with many other Old Testament saints, says in Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And so alongside Joshua from last week, we can look at Rahab as a model of courage, as a model of strength. In fact, we might say that this chapter 
exists to show us both a Gentile counterpart to the courage and strength of Joshua in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 come right together. There's like Jewish strength and courage from Joshua and Gentile strength and courage from Rahab, but also there is male strength and courage in Joshua 1, and there is female strength and courage. Rahab is like a counterpart to the courage and strength of Joshua. But here's the thing. This chapter isn't altogether necessary for the flow of the narrative. We could have done without chapter 2. Let's just get to the people coming into the land. It's kind of a timeout into the story. And so after reading chapter 1, if we're thinking, if you read chapter 1 and you're, think, you're reading all this stuff about, go, Joshua, be strong and courageous, and you're like, what does that mean? How does that apply to me? Well, Joshua tells us then, I'll show you. Here's what it means to be strong and courageous. Here's Rahab. Her femininity is not passive, is not weak. Her femininity is strong and is courageous. Her faith in God's character and promises are strong, are courageous, so much so that she cares for and welcomes God's people when it means potential harm for herself. So much so that she is willing to reject her own culture, reject her former life to align with God's people and to now live under God's word. So much so that she is willing to put a physical and potential attention-grabbing sign over her entire household. She is strong and courageous. The certain promises of God have motivated courageous living in her life. She really, really does believe the power, believe the promises of God, and her life shows it. And all that's true. And Rahab should be a motivation and model for us. If she can live in trust in God's promises with that kind of faith, without the Spirit of God living in, within her, then we can live with this kind of courageous faith with the Spirit of God living within us. Reading stories like Rahab and like so much of the Old Testament ought to motivate godly living within the lives of his people. And yet the last 20 years or so of much of Christian teaching has almost kind of shied away from the kind of thing that I just said. The last 20 years or so, of Christian teaching and preaching is often emphasized, rightly often emphasized, that the gospel of Jesus and the finished work, his finished work on the cross, means that now we can be freed from effort. That sounds right, we should, but where, where it overemphasizes, or it, where it rightly emphasizes the finished work of Jesus, then it underemphasizes our response to him. So it's been emphasized, perhaps, that because Jesus has lived and died for your weakness and your failure, don't get distracted by things like obedience. Don't get distracted by things like holiness. Any effort in obedience and in holiness will inevitably just turn into legalism, will inevitably just turn into moralism. And so the only reason Old Testament stories or characters are useful is to show us their failure and Jesus's coming success. And while that's true, that none of these Old Testament characters are perfectly righteous, they need the finished work of Jesus just as much as we do. And yet, so much of the New Testament draws our attention to imitate their faith. Hebrews 11, we've already mentioned it, but the so-called Hall of Faith being the most prominent example. And then after going through all of the lives of these people, including Rahab, the writer of Hebrews 12 says that because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who have come before us and 
their confident faith in God's promises and they now observe our lives, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The New Testament writers seem to draw our attention to these Old Testament characters and stories and urge us to live and to run as they did, depending on the strength and grace of God, but running the Christian life with effort, with increasing effort to obey God with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind, and with all of our strength. The finished work of Christ now ought to produce and inspire and provoke more and more godliness, more and more holiness, because of what Jesus has not just saved us from, but what he has saved us to. But there have been other trends in theology and preaching over the past few decades. If you were like me, growing up in Sunday school with felt boards and story Bibles, when you read this story, especially when you get to this part of like the scarlet cord, what fires in your memory and your imagination? You remember your sweet and Bible-loving Sunday school teacher who taught you what about the scarlet cord? Yes, here on the walls of Jericho, we see the blood of Jesus bringing salvation to his people. And how do we know that? Well, because the cord is red. The implication almost being anytime you ever see anything red in the Old Testament, this means Jesus' blood. Now, making these kinds of connections is probably a little silly. We could also say that anything yellow must re- relate to the gold in Jesus' crown, or anytime you see anything purple in the Old Testament is clearly just a picture of Jesus' like, royal robes, or anything white is his holiness, and on and on and on. And so pushing back on that kind of reading of the Old Testament, I've been at preaching workshops in the past decade or so where Rahab's scarlet cord is brought up as the kind of thing that we should not try to like force fit in making a connection to Jesus' work on the cross. Just because something is red doesn't mean it's the blood of Jesus. But as it's been said, understanding the Old Testament and its big word here, typology, The things that we see in the Old Testament that are like prefigured shadows of the coming substance of Jesus, the typology, the types of Jesus, are less like a direct straight line to the cross, and they're more like a Nike swoosh. They go backward and then forward. It has to go back before it goes forward. Now, we saw last week in Joshua, or in Joshua 1, that Joshua is a new Moses. He is like leading the people into the land of God's presence. And if we're careful readers here in the beginning of Joshua, we see like rhyming hints at the beginning of Joshua that we can remember the rhymes for at the beginning of Exodus. Just like the Hebrew midwives, there's a woman here, beginning of Exodus and beginning of Joshua, deceiving the king's authorities in order to preserve life. Like Moses was hidden under the bulrushes the beginning of Exodus, the spies are hidden under flax stalks. We'll see many other rhymes and parallels to Exodus next week. But are there any other rhymes where we can think of a household being given very specific commands to put something red over a window or a door? Of course, yeah. Those who stay in the house will live and those who will not will die at the Passover of Exodus. Joshua is intentionally moving us backward to like ring the bells to say this is like that. 
And while Moses and Joshua have some idea of the present experiences of God's action and faithfulness, they are moving forward in some way they don't see clearly. He's saying what we're trying, what we're meant to imagine here, I think, in Rahab in Joshua 2, is we're to go back to the Passover of God's faithfulness to those who follow the, the commands of God, to put the red thing over the door. And these things are then intended to move us forward. Joshua and Moses, though, they see things dimly. They know it's moving somewhere, but they don't see clearly yet until Jesus of Nazareth walks on the scene. And then John the Baptist, he sees clearly. He's an Old Testament, he's an old school, Old Testament prophet of the Lord. And when he sees Jesus, he now can see clearly in a way that Moses and Joshua couldn't. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as he is crucified, Jesus is on Passover Friday, the thing that goes back, that those who had come and put themselves under his bloody bloody cross might find life and light amongst the overhead darkness of judgment, that the judgment of God might pass over them. The scene of Rahab's household is a story, Nike swooshing itself backward to Israel's households in Egypt that then throws them all forward together, no longer in ethnic households, but a multi-ethnic global family, the household of God. But there's one more Nike swoosh for us to consider. The Hebrews, the Hebrew spies, give Rahab a scarlet cord, which might remind us of another story in Genesis. Back in Genesis 38, Judah, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, gives a cord to a Gentile woman named Tamar, whom he assumes is a prostitute. And later in that story, Tamar is about to be destroyed when she produces the cord to Judah, which saves her and which then brings her into Judah's family. She lives, she later has twins named Perez and Zerah, and during the birth, Zerah gets his hand out first, the first twin, and in order to know the firstborn, the midwife ties a scarlet cord around this baby's hand, but then he pulls his hand back in, and then Perez gets in front of him, and he comes out. That's the entire story in Genesis 38. There's no explanation. It's like, that is weird. When you read Genesis 38, There's no reflection on it all until we get to Joshua 2. And then we ultimately will get to Joshua 6. When after the fall of Jericho, spoilers, everyone, in in Joshua 6, Jericho falls. Spoilers here. Rahab and her family are saved. And then in Joshua 6, Rahab marries a man of Israel, a man of the tribe of Judah. And his name is Salmon. And Salmon is of the line of Perez, the twin who, putting together Salmon's family history in Exodus and Numbers, is one of the leading families in the tribe of Judah, maybe even like the princely leader of the entire tribe of Judah. And so it's this man, Salmon, a prince of Judah, who just like his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Judah, it's this man who marries Rahab, this Gentile woman who is assumed to be or is a prostitute. This princely leader, this is not some scrub. This is not some like guy at the bottom of society who will settle for a Canaanite prostitute. But he is a prince of the people, redeeming then the entire Judah and Tamar story. Which that whole story in Genesis 38 is grisly. It is gross, it is full of sin in every character. And then Salmon comes and he takes and he redeems that entire awful story and he makes it beautiful to show the character and the grace of God. 
that Rahab, no matter her ethnic past, Rahab, no matter her vocational past, no matter her sin, no matter her shame, no matter her weakness, no matter her marginalization, no matter her vulnerability, is seen by God's people as admirable, is seen by a prince of the people as a woman who is beautiful, as, is courageous, is strong, is full of faith, a woman who fears the Lord, just as Rabo prayed from Proverbs 31, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And a prince of the people says, she is the one, this prostitute of Jericho. Her faith is who I need to be with. And if you were with us last November, who is the son of Rahab and Salmon? Boaz. In the book of Ruth, Boaz, who will marry another admirable, strong, and courageous Gentile woman. These marginalized women, through the strength of their character and of their faith, all of these women are the grandmothers of David, the rightful, rightful king, the Lion of Judah, who, of course, is one of the greatest and clearest Nike swooshes of the coming kingdom of Jesus. And in Matthew 1, Matthew is very clear to point out all of these women in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1 describes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and then Mary. Each of their stories highlighting what I quoted Sam Albury and Ruth time and time again when we were going through that book, that the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. The family that Jesus has come from, this family, this woman, Rahab, describes the kind of people that Jesus comes for, people of sin, people of shame, people of weakness and vulnerability, that he might redeem them, that he might even wed himself to them, the bride of Christ. That Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or without wrinkle or without any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. No matter who we are, that we might belong to him. That we might belong to him. It requires a decisive about face, but that we might belong to him in belonging that we might love him, that the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the kind of family he has come for, people like Rahab, people like you and like me, that we might live our lives because of his certain and sure promises with strength and courage because he has united himself to us, that he might, not because of our strength and courage, but because of his strength and courage, say, I want you. I want to wed myself to you that you might be mine and we might be a family the family of God, the household of God, all trusting in the blood of the Lamb over the household of God, which has saved us and redeemed us. This book is so good. We've just gotten started on some of these Nike swooshes that go back, but they are all moving forward, and they all have just such practical application to our lives, to people of faith, trusting in the promises of God, even as we wait upon his ultimate salvation. So as we pray, or as we wait, let's pray that he would help us to be a people of patience, a people of confidence. Lord, we do thank you for your work amongst your people, for their commendable faith, for women like Tamar and like Rahab and like Ruth, who make decisive changes in their life, who come to you to align with your people and to put themselves under your word, might we be people like them who 
reject our old life, who reject the culture of our old life and put ourselves under your good love and wisdom, your fatherly care. Like we see and long for the second coming of Jesus. We already have the, the token, the, the scarlet cord that he has given to us in his first coming, his blood on our behalf, the spirit that he has given us as a down payment. Might we wait with patience? Might we wait with confident expectation for your ultimate coming, for your coming, your second coming that is both judgment and salvation? Lord, we long for your coming and we marvel at your grace. What a gracious God you are, what a, sa- what a wonderful savior you, savior you are, Lord Jesus. And we thank you and we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.